We're in a series of messages titled Rebuild, Rebuild, and we are studying the book of Nehemiah over these first few months of 2021. Now, before I go there, I just want to read one scripture to you from Philippians 3. You'll know these verses. So Paul said, I focus on one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Can I get a good amen on this part? I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. We need to put what was behind us and focus on what lies ahead of us. And God's going to help us do that. Nehemiah, series, rebuild. Now, we talked a little bit last week. Give a little bit of background on what, what this study is going to involve. But as we move into it, I want you to, once again, just engage with this thought. COVID is a real thing, and, and it, it is affecting us, and it has affected us. It continues to affect us. It affects the church generally, and it affects the church specifically. With that being said, a number of things have occurred. There have been loss of connections. There have been ministries that have just literally we've had to suspend there are certain parts of who we are as a church that we just have not been able to do. So the rebuild is all about the rebuilding of those, of those things in ways that each of us can have a part in that. And we're going to talk about it through, through the book of Nehemiah. We're really well positioned to do that. Nehemiah is a great book to talk about this rebuild process. Well, while all of those things are true, the rebuilding that I... Most I'm most interested in is this, is people. Because here's what I believe has happened over the last year, okay? I believe that much of kind of who we are has kind of just fallen away. Why? Because we have been sheltered in place, are you ready? For almost 10 months. 10 months. It's hard, it is honestly hard to believe it's hard to believe. Ten months. Many of us have been working at home for all of that period of time. And, and trying to, I chatted with a, a longtime friend yesterday, and she works at uh, Point Loma U, uh, Nazarene University. And in this particular area where she works, the she just, for probably 20 minutes, just kind of poured out the challenges that are, of, how they're, of how she's just trying to maintain her team of people. The, these are unprecedented days. And what happens is we can have a tendency to kind of crumble around the edges. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's just the reality, okay? So the rebuild is about that. And I, and I, and I believe today's message is going to help us in that process. In 1994, Marcy and I were living in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and we had the opportunity to relocate, come to San Diego, and begin a wonderful journey of ministry in San Diego. When we came... Uh, we, after about four years living in San Diego, we decided we needed to buy a little bigger house. Now, nothing crazy. Don't misunderstand me. This was just, our, our, our children were maturing, okay? And we had two very large sons who had outgrown their rooms, and our house was small. And so we thought, well, maybe we can find a little bigger house, and if we get, you know, if we're really fortunate, we'll find a house with a pool. And sure enough, we were able to. So we bought this house, moved in, and here's what we discovered. This was a money pit. It was nothing but fix this and fix this again for the next 10 years. 
it was nonstop. If I called the plumber one time to that house, I called the plumber 75 times. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating, friends. There were times I would have that plumber out there two or three times a week, clearing drain, doing something. It was beyond frustrating. And when we finally sold it 10 years later, Marcy and I went out to a really nice dinner. Okay? We said, we are done with that thing. You know, we're over, we're over it. Okay? Now, here's what, here's what we discovered. In a remodel or a rebuild, here's what happens. You, 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 take, you, you, you focus on one thing, and then when you open that up, you find about three more things. Then you clear that up. Then you go over here and you find three things. And then you come back to where you were and you find, oh, got another issue over here, i.e. plumbing. Okay? I thought I had it fixed. We had broken up our concrete slab to get to some of the plumbing. Did it fix it? Nope, didn't fix it. Still had issues. Come back to it again, again and again and again. And so we have to readdress certain things at certain times, especially in a rebuild after a year like we have had. It is important for us to, to focus on things that I think are really really important. Today we're going to focus on, I think, maybe the most important thing we can focus on, and that is prayer. We're going to focus on prayer. And I know, I know what you're saying. Well, Gary, we talk about prayer a lot. Yeah, we do. But we can't really talk about prayer too much because it's such an integral part of our spiritual lives that we dare not neglect it. And I don't think anybody is. But I need to readdress it from time to time. I need to, have a, I need to have a refocus on prayer again and again so that it stays at the forefront of my life. It is so very important. So we're going to do that today. And so we're going to talk about a rebuild prayer. A rebuild prayer. You know, it's, it's, it's very important to understand some of the, the dynamics of prayer. Consider this. Prayer develops the life of God in us. And I love that phrase, the life of God. That can have so many implications to it, but it develops the life of God in us. Did you know the very powers of darkness are paralyzed by prayer? That is, that is something we need to get into our heart and soul. Also, prayer is the supreme activity of everything that is in our personality. It is the number one thing, prayer. Prayer, the communication that you and I have with God. Also, prayer, listen to this. Prayer alters the person who prays. And God alters the things we pray about. And that is critical to understanding. We think, I think, that I pray and, and this, you know, my prayer. No, it's God that does that. God changes me. God changes things. It's my focus in prayer that is so very important. So we're going to talk about a rebuild prayer today. And as we discovered last week as we started the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was king of Persia. He was the most powerful man in the world. There's no, there's no other way to say it. Cupbearer was a very trusted position in, that, in, a, in a king's administration. They had a bond together because... The cupbearer would taste the wine and the food prior to having it served to the king. And so if it was poisoned, well, you know what the, the result would be. The, the cupbearer loses life, but the king is preserved. So there was an incredible amount of trust between these two individuals, between the king and the cupbearer. That was Nehemiah's position. About a hundred years, we get this story about a hundred years after Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem. 
So now that is really ancient history in many respects. But some of, some of Nehemiah's brothers had, gone, had, had returned from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah asked the question, how are things in Jerusalem? And this is the response when he heard what was going on. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The people in Jerusalem were considered to be in trouble and disgrace. When Nehemiah heard that, his first response was he sat down and wept. Have you ever gotten a phone call and somebody says this to you on the other end of the phone? Are you sitting down? When somebody says that, you realize something pretty powerful is next to follow. Well, Nehemiah wasn't asked that question, are you sitting down? But when he heard of the trouble and disgrace, his country, the place of God's residence at one time, where the temple was, he literally was overcome. And he sat down. And then it says he wept. He wept. When we are confronted with trouble and disgrace, What's our response? When we hear of a bomb that goes off on Christmas morning in Nashville, Tennessee, what's our response? When we're confronted with 61 million abortions in America, what's our response? When there's sex trafficking that is happening in our own communities, what's our response? When there are violence in our streets, what's our response? In reality, our response should be we should sit down and weep. We should be so overcome with the trouble and disgrace that we have no other response. Not only did he sit down and weep, he mourned. Mourning is an interesting, it's an interesting word. It means to express grief or sorrow. Mourning may be expressed by weeping. That's another element of it. It's also, I like this, this characterization. It's the sigh or inward silent grief. Very interesting about that particular use of the word mourn. That iteration of mourn in the Hebrew, it's the only time it's used in all of the Old Testament. I think that's fascinating because there was something that set apart that type of mourning over the, over the difficulty, the disgrace and the trouble that Jerusalem was in that just so impacted Nehemiah. He mourned. Well, then he fasted. He fasted, most likely, food that was given to him. And what does that do? Well, it brings us into a different kind of relationship, a different type of closeness and intimacy with God when we give up something to accomplish something else, especially in the spiritual realm. He fasted. So he sat down and he wept. He mourned. He fasted. And the fourth is that he prayed. It's not that prayer was the last on his list, but more I think it's a, it is a conglomeration. It is one thing of the weeping, the mourning, the fasting, and the praying. It is this general response that he has to what he has heard. And so his response is this extraordinary prayer in chapter 1. And it would be my hope maybe that we would take this prayer from this day forward and we may even use it as in our own personal life of a way that we could pattern our prayers. There are elements here that are so strong that would make an incredible pathway of prayer. So what, we'd like to, what I'd like to do this morning is I want to take 
a look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. We're going to look at a rebuild prayer, Nehemiah's prayer. So look at it with me, if you would, Nehemiah 1, verse 5. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, that even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Speak life and encouragement to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk for a few moments, give you six thoughts about a rebuild prayer. What does it look like? Number f- the first one is this. Oh, before I do that, before I do that, I'm sorry, I got a little bit ahead of myself. I got too excited about it. There we go. This is the first of nine prayers in the book of Nehemiah. Now, you would think about that in just this short book, that there would be nine different occasions where Nehemiah would pray. What does that tell you? It tells you that his life was founded and grounded in prayer. He was a person of prayer. Martin Luther said this. He said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible to be alive without breathing. It is something that should mark every one of our lives. And Nehemiah helps us with what I call a rebuild prayer. Six things. A rebuild prayer is filled with worship. A rebuild prayer is filled with worship. Nehemiah begins his prayer by saying, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He begins with worship. He acknowledges who God is. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus was asked this question by his disciples. Jesus, would you teach us to pray as John taught his disciples how to pray? Here was Jesus' response, Luke 11 2. So Jesus taught them this prayer. Our heavenly Father, may the glory of your name be the center on which our life turns. The idea is, is that when you pray, worship, worship. Nehemiah uses no less than eight different words of worship in this prayer. Words like God is sovereign and mighty and holy and loving and faithful and vocal and attentive and merciful. These these descriptions underscore the power and the importance of worship in our prayers. Our prayers may more look like, God, I need, God, I want, God, please give me, please help me this, and uh, amen. Sometimes that may speak more to what our prayer life is like than what Nehemiah models for us. In fact, it is really important that great prayers and scriptures ought to be incentives and models of our own. He worships God in his prayer again and again. And I will tell you that when we turn our attention to God in worship, the desires and the needs and the wants, they'll all come. But you know something? Something's happening in us. We are changing as we worship him. Our focus is on God more than it is on the needs of our life. It doesn't mean the needs aren't important. That's not the point. 
But we often just move to the needs and we fail to worship God. Your prayer and my prayer needs to be filled with worship. With worship. Psalm 96, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. Our prayers need to be filled with worship. With worship. The second thought of a rebuild prayer is that it pleads with God. It pleads with God. Nehemiah says it this way, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear. Isn't that fascinating? And here's what I, here's what I would say. He's, he's in some respects being, he's repeating himself. There is a plea that is going out to God. God, hear me. God, let your eyes be open and hear me. He is so passionate about the trouble and disgrace that he is pleading with God to hear him. I wonder, I wonder he is, what are we pleading with God for God to do in our lives? What are we passionate about? I fear that my passions are often, are often shallow and trivial. Are, are, are my passions, am I pleading for the right things? Am I pleading for that which would please God? What am I pleading God about? Jeremiah 12 says, oh Lord, listen to this. You are uncompromisingly righteous and consistently just when I plead my case with you. I love that. Uncompromisingly righteous and what? Consistently just. We come before the Lord and we say, God, hear me. God, would you hear me? And he will, in an inconsistent way, not an inconsistent way. (laughs) How would we read it again? It's better for me to just do it this way. Uncompromisingly. There we go. He will hear what we say and he will respond accordingly with perfect justice and righteousness. That is so good. We need to plead. We should plead our case before the Lord. Listen to Mark chapter 7. A woman came to him whose little girl was possessed by a demon. She had heard about Jesus and now she came and fell at his feet and pled with him to release her. Child from the demon's control. Pled with her. What are we pleading God for? Is there a son or a daughter who is away from the Lord? A spouse that needs a miracle in their life and they don't know where to turn? Something in our own life that has just overwhelmed us? What are we pleading God for? We should be, a rebuild prayer pleads with God. Third, a rebuild prayer is persistent. Nehemiah says it this way, hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. It's literally a 24-7 prayer. He never stops. It's something that is consistently on his mind and heart. And so he just continues to pour out prayers unto God. I will tell you, over these last number of weeks, as more of the cases of COVID have come come into my attention, I find myself praying more maybe than I've ever prayed. I'll be driving somewhere and then just some, and I'll pray for that person. And I'm not saying this in a way, in any way, shape, or form to say, oh, look at, no. It's just saying God is impressing on me in different ways than he's ever impressed upon me before to pray day and night for the things that are of great concern. Nehemiah is a pattern of that. He's an example of that. Now, I'm going to say something right now that I'm going to do a disclaimer immediately, right now. Here we go. I do 
in no way endorse this particular television program. Okay, now I feel better. 32 seasons, and it began in 1989, and I'm talking about The Simpsons. Now, I will confess that I have watched a number of episodes of The Simpsons, and I have laughed a lot. Now, don't think less of me, but that's just the truth. There it is. There's one episode of The Simpsons in the, as a family driving down the road. And Bart is in the back, and Bart is the precocious little boy in the uh, story. And he asked this very simple question of Homer, his dad. Are we there yet? Not a big deal. Except the way that Bart asked the question is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we? And it goes on and on and on until Homer just explodes. Now, the funny part of that is, as a parent, you get it. Because you've all been driving somewhere, and that is happening. And it's like, no, we're not there. You're, just, you know, you're ready to blow. Well, he was being persistent. But that, that persistence is not a particularly good thing. But I think we understand the point. We are to be persistent in our prayer. And we should not be ashamed to ask God again and again and again for the same thing is perfectly okay. God does not say, oh, not you again, and not that again. I'm done with you, and I'm done with that. It's not what God does, gratefully so. Listen to Luke chapter 11. We talked a little bit about this a minute ago, about Jesus teaching on prayer. Listen to this, verse 5. Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight Wanting to borrow three loaves of bread, you say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, <laughs> if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I, now listen to, the, listen to what Jesus said. And so I tell you, Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Persistence in prayer does not push God or push us aside when God hears that prayer. No, he responds. Keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking, and God will respond. Persistence in prayer. You may have, I don't know if you've ever heard of a man by the name of Ian e. Bounds. Ian e. Bounds was a 19th century, actually he was an attorney. He was trained, he was trained as, a, as an attorney, became a pastor later on in his life, and served in a pastoral position about 18 years or so, from what I can understand. Ian e. Bounds wrote 11 books during the course of his life. I think only two of them were published while he was still living, while he was living. They were all published afterwards. Uh, there was something about what E.M. Bounds wrote and his, the profound nature of what he wrote about prayer that of the 11 books that he wrote, nine of them are on prayer. Things like the power of prayer, the necessity of prayer. Incredible books. They're not long books, but they're just powerful, powerful books. In fact, it was said of E.M. Bounds that he would get up in the morning at 4 a.m. and pray till 7. Every day. Every day. Three hours of prayer. In fact, he would not let his speaking engagements or his travel arrangements ever 
interfere with his prayer time at 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. In fact, if he was in a kind of a boarding room with other individuals in the room with him, it did not deter him. He got up and he prayed, even with them in the room, and to the point where they were annoyed with him. But here's what was said of him later. Is that, and this is a this is a very loose paraphrase. It says, even though he would pray and he would interrupt and he would, no one would pray for our souls like he would. He was persistent. He never stopped. So he wrote this phrase. He says, we are charged in God's word always to pray. In everything by prayer. Continuing instant in prayer. To pray everywhere. Praying always. Do you think he was a person who understood persistent prayer? We need to pray with persistence. That's a rebuild prayer. Also, a rebuild prayer confesses sin. This is a part of the of Nehemiah's prayer that's always humbled me. I said a few moments ago that Nehemiah was, it's about a hundred years after Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem. So that's ancient history. And Nehemiah was born in Persia. So he was not in Judah when all of this happened. But here's what he said. He takes responsibility upon himself. He asked God to forgive him for the sins committed by me. He says, by me, by my fathers, and by us. What an incredible prayer. Most of us really don't want to admit, take responsibility for anything. I mean, I really, I mean, we kind of avoid all of that. And then something like this, we could have easily said, well, God, you know, I really do, am really concerned about the trouble and disgrace that's going on over here. And even though I didn't have anything to do it, would you please intervene and do something about this? It's kind of the way we would pray. Maybe we'd never articulate it like that, but that's what we might think. But Nehemiah says it this way. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me and forgive my fathers. Confess his sin. That's incredible that he would do this. But it speaks so well to me of the posture I should take when I approach the Lord. I say this with humility. God's in heaven. I'm not. I... I I, have to yield, I want to yield to him. I want to be in a place where my prayers are most effective. In the book of James, we would read that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So therefore, I want to be righteous in the sight of God when I pray. And I'm going to start, my, I'm going to have a part of my prayer to be confession of sin. I want to be right with God every month. And we're going to do this in a few moments. When we gather for communion, what do we do? We take a few moments and we make sure that we are all right with God. Why? Because we want our lives to measure up to the righteousness of God. I want to be in a place of the, of the closest connection and intimacy with my Father that I possibly can be. I want my prayers to be effective and powerful. Therefore, I want to be righteous in the sight of God. That does not come from what I do. It comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. I've got to do that. He confesses sin. It's just so powerful. He repents of sin that he didn't have anything to do with. It was not, it wasn't him, but he confesses it nonetheless. And I think what happens is, as you read this prayer, you see that his understanding of worship his constant pleading with God, his persistence in prayer, it just brings him back to the place, God, forgive me. Puts me in, it puts him in a right position, a right attitude before the Lord in prayer. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. We claim to have no sin. We're only fooling ourselves. 
and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unwickedness, all wickedness. We claim to have not sinned. We are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. I want to live a life of consistent confession before the Lord. Understanding that my dependence is upon him, not upon me. That he is the one that makes me righteous. He is the one that I turn to in my time of need, and therefore I always want to be in right relationship with him. Also, a rebuild prayer declares God's promises. Declares God's promises. Here's what Nehemiah says. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. Now, it seems like when you look at that very simply, you say, wait a minute. Nehemiah is reminding God of his promises? Now, clearly, God doesn't need to be reminded of what he said. I think it builds our faith when we remind God of the promises he has made. And it is not disrespectful or blasphemous to remind God of the promises that he has made to us. Nehemiah does it. A few days ago, I got into a conversation with my daughter. And I was giving her a hard time about something. And I said, now look, you don't do this. Because if you do, you owe me a 20-minute neck massage. She goes, okay, I won't. I won't do it. And I won't, I won't do it this way. I said, oh, fine, fine. So about two or three days later, having a conversation, and I can see this real coy smile on her face, and I said, you did it, didn't you? She goes, yeah, I did. I said, okay, you owe me. You owe me. You made me a promise. You owe me. She said, okay. She said, but I can't do it. I said, not right now, but it's coming. It's coming. Just get ready. So a couple of days later, I said, all right, time. I'm really, come on now, get after it. So she gave me my 20-minute neck massage. Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a ridiculous little story. But the point is, is we've all been in a place where we have, we've asked somebody to keep good on a promise or make good on a promise or we would make good on a promise. God makes good on his promises. They're in his word. Listen to what Nehemiah speaks to. What is he talking about when he says, remember what your servant Moses, okay? Leviticus 26. If you will not listen to me, this is the Lord, if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. That's the promise of God and that's exactly what happened. What's cool about what Nehemiah does, Nehemiah calls to account the promises of God on both sides of the ledger. Not, not only the good things, but also, God, you promised this is what would happen, and that's exactly where we are. We are in Persia. We are the slaves of the Persian Empire. Our homeland has been destroyed. That's what you said would happen, and you did it. You did it. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is reminding God. That is the promise you have made God. And I am reminding you this is the promise. Let it be so. There's nothing wrong with reminding God of the promises he has made. Remember, what God has said, he will do. I'm going to say that one more time. Because some of you need to get this into your heart and soul by just saying a simple amen, a grunt, or something. What God has said, he will do. 
God is not going to go back on his promises. And it's perfectly okay to remind God of the promises he has made. God is not saying, hey, no, 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 no. That's, off, that's out of bounds. You can't go there. No. It's what we learn in this prayer of a rebuild prayer is that we can remind God of his promises. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, and through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. And lastly, a rebuild prayer, a rebuild prayer asks in faith. It asks in faith. Nehemiah says it this way. He says, give your servant success today. Now that doesn't seem like much, but it really is an incredible statement of faith when you go a little bit farther into the story. Understand this, prayer must not be a must not be theoretical only. It, it It must include conviction that I'm available, Lord, ready and willing. It can't just be, well, Lord, you know, I'm ready. No, it has to have something. There has to be faith that backs it up. Nehemiah's conviction is is so, is observed in these closing words. He is willing and ready to do whatever it was that God would have him to do to relieve the trouble and disgrace in his homeland. He was ready. He says, give your servant success today by granting a favor in the presence of this man. Granting, he says, I'm ready. Lord, give me, give me favor. Give me favor. And do it today. That is a by faith statement. However, his faith would be put to the test by waiting. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. may not seem like much, but when this story started, it started in the month of Kislev. That's December. This is now springtime. Over a hundred days have passed from the time that Nehemiah says, grant me favor in the presence of this man today. Three and a half months pass. And nothing's happened. A hundred days, nothing's happened. I've asked God faithfully. I've confessed my sin. I have been persistent in prayer, but nothing's happening. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you still there? Ever been there? Ever done that? Maybe you're doing that right now. You're praying for something and you're waiting. You're waiting. And you're waiting. Let me encourage you today. Your prayers and mine will outlive us. They're not bound to our particular time frame, as it were. I am a firm believer, and I have said this on numerous occasions. I believe that I do what I do today, I stand where I stand today, because of two praying grandmothers, neither of which I really knew. One passed when I was six, the other passed when I was 12. But she lived so far away, we didn't have much interaction with her. I think I was at her house maybe three times in my short 12 years. Didn't really know my grandma Fitzgerald. Didn't know her. My grandma Jones, I didn't know her because I was so young. I remembered, I just remember bits and pieces. So what I learned of my grandmothers was this. I learned it from my parents, obviously. But I learned that they were praying grandmothers. They knew how to go to the Lord in prayer. I do not know by any way, shape, or form, how much they prayed for me. I don't know that. But I'm convinced 
beyond, you, you cannot, you could not change my mind that I am here today as a product of their prayers. Your prayers are powerful, and they will extend far beyond this life. God is not bound by the 70 or so years that God gives us. He's not bound by that. His prayers go far, your prayers will go far and away above all of that. Our response is to be faithful and to ask with faith. And if we say, God, give me success today and it happens in three months, so so be it. If it happens in three years, if it happens in 10 years, if it happens in 20 years, it does not matter when it is done. The point for you and me is to ask in faith. What are you believing for this morning? What is it that is on your heart and on your mind today? God, I am believing for this, and God, I am, putting it to, I am putting it to you. Lord, this is your promise to me, and I am holding on to that promise, and I'm not going to waver, and I will do whatever you ask me to do in the meantime. God, I give this to you. Are we willing to do that? I trust that we are. We don't like to wait, because faith often requires waiting. We just don't like it. Nehemiah's request was for today. But it was three months before God answered his prayer. And when he did, he answered it over and above his expectations. But listen to what the scriptures say, Psalm 27. Wait patiently for the Lord, be brave and courageous. Yet, yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Micah 7, as for me, I will look to the Lord for help. I wait confidently for for God to save me, and my God will certainly hear me. Galatians 6, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Wait. What does a rebuild prayer do? It's filled with worship. It pleads with God. It's persistent. It confesses sin. It declares God's promises and it asks in faith. Let the 21 days of prayer be a time when you can allow God to use this prayer to rebuild prayer within your life or maybe to begin something that hasn't, that hasn't yet taken hold of your life. Let these 21 days be just that. And as we close this morning, let me give you four quick things, four benefits of prayer picked up from Chuck Swindoll. I love, I love Charles Swindoll. He's a great writer, great pastor, teacher. Four things, very quickly. Prayer makes me wait. That's a benefit of prayer. It makes me wait on God. Also, prayer clears my vision. It clears my vision. When we are praying, we're focused on God, if if we were to just look back at what Nehemiah taught us about worship and so forth in prayer, it it gives us a different vision, a different picture. So it clarifies or clears my vision. Third, it quiets my heart. I love that. I love this phrase. I cannot worry and pray at the same time. You just can't do it. And then this, this great phrase. Ready? Knees don't knock when you kneel on them. Okay? Knees don't knock when you kneel on them. And then number four, prayer activates my faith. We're putting our trust and our confidence in God. So here's the bottom line this morning. Here it is. Bottom line. If the one thing, you don't hear anything else today, here it is. Bottom line, pray. 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 We need to be people, not just who pray, but become people of prayer. So regardless of what you may experience, regardless of what your day looks like, regardless of what your schedule looks like, pray, pray, pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this morning. We pray that in these few moments that we have before we
go out into our week, that you would be with us and you would strengthen us and help us. And I pray that you would put it in us to be people of prayer. And maybe we would use even Nehemiah's prayer as a pattern, as an example to help us become even better, more proficient, just better prayers, better people through our prayer, however we want to characterize it. I want to pray. I want to be a person of prayer. And I pray that that's exactly what's on all of our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.